Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 82, Tradition. Before we get into the second half of the Sola Scriptura debate with Protestant Rob Bowman and Eastern Orthodox Reverend Lawrence Cleanwork, let me remind you where we left off in the previous episode. Rob gave his opening statement affirming that Scripture is the only infallible rule of doctrine and practice for Christians today. He argued that only Scripture is the Word of God and that while the Apostles delivered the Word of God verbally and inscripturated the New Testament, this kind of authority does not exist today. Instead, Rob argued, they told their readers to hold fast to that which they had already delivered to them, whether in the form of a letter or by word of mouth, explaining why he thinks that critics of Sola Scriptura take this verse, uh, the verse that reads this way, out of its context to mean something else. Lawrence then gave his opening statement denying the debate proposition, explaining why he thinks the slogan Sola Scriptura is dangerous and potentially toxic, resulting in all sorts of denominations and uh, differences in, in interpretation. He explained that the Eastern Orthodox Church sees apostolic tradition as infallible, of which scripture is just one part, and that scripture, church, and tradition, all three of those, were never intended to be divorced from one another. Rob then gave his rebuttal, followed by Lawrence's rebuttal, and it was at that point that we left off, so let's move right back into the debate with Lawrence cross-examining Rob. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word, tradition. Okay, so, uh, Lawrence, whenever you're ready, you get to cross-examine Rob first, and I'll start your ten minutes as soon as you begin. Okay, then um, I would like to um, ask a couple of questions during this uh, time for um, cross-examination that I think will um, help clarify some of the, uh, the positions that were, were taken. Uh, my first question, uh, Rob, would be, do you agree that sola scriptura, to be true must be taught in the scriptures themselves, or do you uh, make your argument, which it seems is the case uh, tonight, solely on the unique nature of scripture as being the the written word of God? Uh, Well, can you hear me all right? Yes. Uh, Good. Uh, I would say uh, the truth is my position somewhere between those two extremes. the, the classic Reformation position uh, regarding doctrine and scripture is articulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, which is that a, a doctrine to be binding on the church must either be expressly set forth in scripture or must clearly uh, follow from what scripture definitely teaches. Uh, so that uh, the doctrine of sola scriptura does not need to be articulated in so many words or uh, structured in the the same fashion in the Bible that we would articulate it today, and it could still be uh, a a scriptural doctrine in that it follows from what Scripture says. And the analogy here that I would use would be the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Protestant Christians, evangelical conservative Protestant Christians, accept the doctrine of the Trinity as a biblical doctrine, even though the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity follows necessarily from what Scripture teaches about the unity of the divine being and about the identity and nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So uh, we have no trouble accepting as scriptural or biblical doctrines like that, even if they are not set forth in so many words in Scripture, and that would be the same thing with the doctrine of sola scriptura. It follows from what Scripture claims for itself and for what it, claim, what it teaches about uh, the difference between the Word of God and the words of men that are not the Word of God. And, and that's really, that's, and about the fact that the uh, apostles and prophets are presented in the New Testament as a temporary uh, set of ministries that come to an end 
uh, with the passing of the apostles at the end of the first century, and that the transition then is to a church that is to be guided by recalling and living by the deposit of faith that they left behind in Scripture. Okay. Now, um, I'm just asking questions for now. I'm not sure if I can uh, do a, a, a minor rebuttal uh, when I do so. But then I would have to say, what verses then, maybe four or five verses, would you point to that articulate this doctrine? Since in the case of the Trinity, we could certainly uh, agree on uh, maybe ten verses that settle basically the, uh, the, the, the core the core concept, which is that of the Trinity. So what scriptures then would you bring forward as being comp compellingly uh, able to teach uh, Sola Scriptura as defined this evening? Well, as I uh, mentioned in the toward the end of my opening statement, an example of a text that I think uh, is relevant here is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, where Peter says that uh, the church is to stand firm against false teachers after the uh, passing of the apostles by holding on to and remembering the words that had been previously spoken uh, by the prophets and Christ through the apostles. That's 2 Peter 3, verse 2. Now, actually, if we were going to do this right, we would go through all of 2 Peter and see that this is what Peter is doing throughout the epistle. Uh, from the very beginning of the uh, of the epistle, where he lays out, uh, you know, the fact that we've got everything that we need now for uh, living godly lives, uh, the the unique character of Scripture that, that we have in the description given at the end of chapter one, the warning about the false teachers that were like the false prophets of old at the beginning of chapter two, and then going into chapter three and the verse that I quoted, uh, and then concluding with uh, the warning, uh, the exhortation to uh, live by the teachings of the uh, scriptures, including the writings of Paul, uh, and the warning that there are people, of course, that will distort these uh, scriptural teachings. So, actually, I don't really like the idea of being limited to a proof text here or there. If we look through all, all of Second Peter, uh, all of the epistle of Jude, uh, Paul's teaching in Second Timothy, which was his last epistle, we see a consistent pattern here of the apostles laying the, the basis, the, the, the foundation for the transition for the church after the passing of the apostles. And in every case, we find that they are not handing over the keys uh, to an infallible church uh, whose uh, teaching uh, through the bishops are to be regarded as equal in authority to Scripture or equal in authority to the apostles. Uh, they are not uh, designating individuals as the successors to the apostles, but instead they are saying, remember what we said, hold on to what we told you, uh, remember what Christ said through the apostles, remember what the prophets said, the word of God that was given to you, that's the foundation, that's the basis. We see this throughout those final epistles written by Paul, Peter, and Jude in the New Testament. And that's the way that I would develop more thoroughly a biblical basis for sola scriptura. Could you see, though, that in these same uh, letters which you mentioned, and we discussed 2 Thessalonians 2.15, we could discuss also Timothy and to Peter, that there's also an appeal to what was delivered orally as well as in writing. And do you uh, agree that what was taught uh, in uh, orally uh, was probably, it would make sense, different in scope or in nature than what was taught in writing, as if when someone goes on a trip and says, you know, please follow my instructions that I left you when we spoke and also my notes, do you see how, in fact, uh, these same uh, epistles could be used to also refer to uh, oral tradition as well to the structure of the church, which is the succession of, of presbyters and, uh, and bishops? Well, this is a hypothetical question, uh, whether this actually is what's going on in a passage like Second Thessalonians 2 uh, remains to be seen. I, if you don't mind, uh, I'll, I'll reserve my comment on that verse until we turn the tables here, because I'd like to ask you some questions about that very text. But in general, my answer is, it, it, hypothetically, it could have been that way, but that's not what we see in these epistles. We do not see them referring to 
uh, oral teachings that are separate from what is being uh, spoken or delivered in the writings, that these are in a different category of doctrine or a different category of instruction uh, that supplement uh, or augment what is in uh, the epistles, uh, but rather what we see is uh, they are uh, expecting people to obey them and to, to follow their teaching uh, while they are living, whether it's in writing or not. Okay, so one last question since we have only two minutes. Um, sure. Do you um, agree um, that one could make a very strong case then with specific verses, since you did not mention the classic 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, but that, in fact, sola ecclesia could be uh, uh, a good slogan because the, for the word infallible, the church is described to be infallibly uh, able to uh, be victorious even over death, and it is described as the pillar and bulwark or pillar and foundation of the truth in the same epistles which you uh, uh, argue uh, teach uh, Sola Scriptura? Well, let's clear this up right now. Uh, the Church will not fail in its mission to be the people of God, to uh, spread the gospel to all nations, uh, and to uh, you know survive and thrive as the people of God until the second coming of Christ. That that calling, that mission will not fail. But that's not what we're talking about. I'm not proposing that only Scripture will not fail in, in some vague, undefined sense. I'm saying that Scripture is the only unfailing revelation of doctrinal truth to the Church that we have today that is to be our uh, final court of appeal in matters of controversy among Christians. That's all I'm claiming. Okay, thank you. I think we're done with uh, my session for cross-examination. Okay, thank you, Lawrence. And now, Rob, when you're when you begin, I'll start your ten-minute timer. All right, very good, uh, Lawrence. Let me begin by uh, asking you a question pertaining to your uh, comment, uh, your your criticism, which you mentioned uh, a couple of times, that you find the slogan "Sola Scriptura" misleading, uh, potentially even toxic. Would you agree that most slogans, uh, because they tend to be very uh, abbreviated, uh, short, pithy, soundbite expressions, that most uh, slogans are potentially misunderstood if they're not understood in context? I certainly agree, and um, this is such a, a popular and important slogan that admittedly by many uh, uh, reformed Christians or evangelicals, such as uh, I have here on my table a book uh, by Keith Matheson called uh, The Shape of Sola Scriptura, where he admits that basically for most evangelicals, Sola Scriptura is understood and received and lived as Sola Scriptura, as solo, not sola, uh, as in uh, o, uh, o sole mio. So, um, <laughs> yes, there is a real problem uh, in that this slogan, which is so... Um, uh, so strong, and this culture is so strong that uh, a pastor and his Bible can kind of reinvent the wheel, that what we see is that this slogan is ultimately dangerous, and uh, and therefore there's this orthodox desire to come out and to refute it, all the while affirming what could be said that is true if it was indeed properly explained, which we don't think that it is. Well, let me ask you about a common a slogan on the other side, which is the infallibility of the church. Would you agree that the expression, the infallibility of the church, is something that could be easily misused, misunderstood, abused, and even turned into something quite dangerous? I agree that, uh, again, it needs to be uh, uh, explained. Uh, however, you know, I have not seen this um, uh, slogan uh, destroy the ancient churches. What I see is that for those who have not embraced the slogan, and here I would say uh, uh, Roman Catholics broadly, the Orthodox broadly, including the uh, Oriental Orthodox, what we have seen is is, is a stable body of doctrine uh, and uh, a stable body of practice. Uh, what we have seen for, for those who have embraced the slogan is disintegration, and confusion over all kinds of topics, and especially a loss of awareness that that the church needs to be identified as it has precise characteristics, and that it is uh, what we are called to to find 
to have this infallible assurance that we are joined to Christ. Well, uh, let me move on because I, I have a couple other points I want to address, even though we could spend the entire 10 minutes on this issue. Uh, and let me ask you, uh, as I said I would do, uh, to, uh, to think with me a little bit about Second Thessalonians 2. Uh, if I understood you correctly, you uh, take the position that Second Thessalonians 2.15 represents a standing order to the church that still applies today, and that it applies in particular to such matters as liturgical practices and not so much to doctrinal matters. Would that be correct? That is correct, yes. I think it's a good summary. If if you would look at Second Thessalonians 2, and we don't have the time here, obviously, in, in this brief uh, exchange to do a thorough uh, read-through and exegesis of uh, all of the passage, but if you, if, if you think about what's in Second Thessalonians 2, in the verses that lead up to, as well as the verses that lead away from, following verse 15, I, I don't see anything in this passage that suggests that holding on to the traditions, whether uh, received by uh, word or you know orally or or uh, a letter, um, uh, that this has anything to do with with uh, such matters as liturgical practices, making the sign of the cross, or facing east when one prays, or anything like that. But instead, it seems to me, and I ask your comment on this, that in the immediate context, uh, perhaps epitomized by verses 11 and 12, the issue is whether they are going to believe a falsehood, false doctrine, or believe the truth, that is the basis of the Christian faith. And again, if you look at verses 11 and 12, that seems to be the context. So isn't doctrine, in fact, what Paul is concerned about here in this passage? Well, let me clarify. I, I do think that tradition as a concept uh, certainly embraces liturgical practices, since obviously the scriptures do not have details about it. I also think that Paul uses the language of tradition as in 1 Corinthians 11, to describe specifically the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Uh, I also agree that uh, tradition embraces what I would say is the proper interpretation of the scriptures. It's, it's something, it's like what the Greek called the skopos. It's, Irenaeus talks about having uh, various uh, uh, stones to form a, a mosaic, and that you can do just about anything with those stones, but if you know what it's supposed to be, in this case, uh, you he talks about a head of a dog or head of a king. If you know the scopos, which is what tradition has delivered to the churches, then you will not rearrange verses in a way that produces heresy. So agreed, uh, tradition can embrace uh, doctrine, especially the interpretation of doctrine, uh, as well as uh, the, the life of the church. Uh, but my question is, in Second Thessalonians 2.15, in the context, is there any reason to think that uh, holding fast to the traditions there means anything other than holding fast to the true doctrine uh, as opposed to embracing the false lie that Paul warns about in the preceding verses. Well, I would say that the verse is really quite uh, uh, embracing and comprehensive. It comes at the conclusion of the chapter, and I think it's a standing order to these Christians uh, to always maintain what was taught to them uh, through uh, uh, oral teaching or um, in, in the epistles, and uh, I think uh, it, it would be wrong to, to exclude liturgical practices from the standing command, which is very broad and, and very all-encompassing. Uh, one more topic I want to explore with you very briefly in the time remaining, and that has to do with infant baptism. And this also uh, f focusing here on your uh, distinction between uh, doctrine, which you say you agree must be uh, demonstrable from Scripture and practices such as uh, the sacraments and liturgical practices and so forth, which you say do not need to be demonstrated from Scripture but can be uh, known uh, exclusively, if that is the case, uh, from this oral tradition. Uh, and in that context, you cited the example of infant baptism. But my question is, is it really possible to separate the practice of infant baptism from the theology that undergirds it. In other words, infant baptism presupposes, in any communion that practices it, some theological rationale for the practice that involves uh, understandings of such issues as 
when a person is regenerate and what causes or precipitates or precedes that regeneration, uh, how the Holy Spirit works in connection with faith, if a conscious uh, faith is necessary for a person to be regenerated, uh, what, it, what is involved and what is required to be incorporated into the church uh, as a practicing member of the community of the communion of faith and so forth. So isn't it true that you can't really separate a theology uh, or a doctrine uh, from the liturgical or sacramental practice? It is quite true. In fact, uh, St. Irenaeus says that our theology agrees with the Eucharist and the Eucharist agrees with our theology. The, the, uh, the, the theology of the church is fully expressed in this liturgical life. But I would say that as an example in view of the debate uh, among, you know, pedo-baptists and, and baptists on this issue, people that only rely on scripture, and you can see that the deadlock between people of uh, trying to bring sincere arguments, I would say that this is a case where we can learn about what the apostles taught, not only as you suggested by reading their letters, but also by reading the letters of those who were immediately followers or those who were aware of what was going on in the churches at large. Origen, for example, uh, was close enough. He, make a distinct, he makes a, a, a distinction between his own speculations and what is well-established. He has traveled extensively. So when he says that the apostles delivered this practice, I think it is an important uh, illustration of this principle that uh, uh, tradition and the churches are needed to properly interpret and use the scriptures infallibly. Well, Lawrence, thanks for letting me ask you these uh, questions and appreciate your responses. Thank you. Okay, <clears throat> Lawrence, are you ready to give your closing or do you need a, a moment? It's fine, I'm ready to go. Okay, well, as soon as you begin, I'll go ahead and start your five-minute timer. Okay, again, I want to uh, say thank you to... Uh, uh, to Chris and Rob for uh, making this uh, discussion, this debate uh, possible. I'd like to share some reflections then on what is at stake ultimately. For instance, I think that Christians should be concerned not only to read the scriptures as the word of God, uh, but also to identify what and where is the church the same scriptures which uh, we embrace as having this unique authority points us to the church as a pillar and foundation of truth. It tells us to be obedient to, to the presbyters or elders, as in uh, uh, Hebrews uh, 13. And so I think that the danger, again, with Sola Scriptura is that it distracts people from the primordial quest, so to speak, which is to find where is the Eucharist and where is the Church. Infallible to me, this term which we used, and admittedly, uh, Rob said that, well, it's kind of an idealistic thing, it's, it's kind of a theory. In practice, we have limited knowledge, we have degrees of certainty. Indeed, um, when you read, for example, the letter of um, St. Um, Ignatius of Antioch, he stresses that we should only consider it assured, Greek bebeia, that Eucharist, which has certain characteristics. And I believe that the scriptures need to function in harmony with the Eucharist, which is the church, which in harmony with the bishops in succession historically, and indeed in uh, our case being orthodox in geographical succession, since the very same churches that are in the scriptures, uh, Corinth and Thessaloniki, uh, still exist to this very day. Even Jerusalem, people can go and see how things are done. I would be concerned uh, uh, not to pay close attention to these practices which St. Basil could write were accepted universally, such as the way uh, a baptism takes place, such as the way the Eucharist is administered, uh, such as particular um, particular uh, ways that the church lives and the way the church joins people to Christ for their salvation. And so this is a concern that uh, I want to address is to redirect people uh, through their uh, sense of scripture to finding both church and tradition. 
the, the, the problem with Sola Scriptura is that it misleads people often into believing that all they need is the scriptures apart from this pre-existing divinely ordained structure. If the scriptures are indeed divinely inspired, that the spirit was at work, we must also realize that the church is also a, a divine uh, spiritual organism likewise. If we look at a text such as 2 Timothy 3.16, we see that it is for the man of God, Timothy, who was in fact ordained in the church, it's for him to be fully equipped. It does not exist just for anyone who would pick up the book apart from the pre-existing uh, Eucharist of the church that pre-exists anyone. Moreover, many of the uh, definitions of Sola Scriptura uh, are in fact misleading in that in order to exist, the scriptures did need the existence and the testimony of the churches and the bishops historically to come into existence. And the question that needs to be brought forward is if we trust these people that preserved and discerned the scriptures, a process that uh, uh, was concluded around the year 367, should we not also trust the same teachers for these other things, such as baptism, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the way things are done, and seek the church where Christ established it? And that concludes my statement. Okay, thank you, Lawrence. And now, Rob, when you begin, I'll start your five-minute timer. All right, thank you very much. Well, as uh, I believe it was Ronald Reagan uh, that said many years ago, uh, in a very different context than the one that we're dealing with here, uh, trust but verify. Uh, we should uh, learn from, uh, embrace, uh, and accept all the truth that we can possibly uh, glean and learn from uh, Christians who've gone before us, uh, from the early church fathers, uh, from all Christians throughout uh, church history and uh, from Christians of uh, communions of denominations and traditions that differ from ours. Uh, I think that it would be a shame for evangelical Protestants not to learn from Eastern Orthodox Christian brothers and sisters and uh, vice versa. I think it would be a shame for us uh, both not to learn from our Roman Catholic brethren and so forth. Uh, but at the same time, uh, none of these uh, communions uh, have an exclusive monopoly on the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, none of them can claim that it and it alone, exclusively and comprehensively, is the church. Uh, Lawrence is correct in saying that uh, a big question here is what is the church? And, uh, you know, when you talk about a passage like Matthew 16, uh, 18, where Christ promises that the gates of Hades would not prevail against the church, uh, this cannot be uh, restated to mean uh, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the Orthodox Church with a capital O, uh, as distinguished from, say, the Roman Catholic Church or Protestantism. Uh, it is not referring to a specific segment of the Church, and I would insist that, uh, and I know that Father Lawrence would disagree with me, that the Orthodox Church is not uh, the sum and total of the Church, but it is part of the Church. We are all part of the body of Christ if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and if we are baptized into the body of believers, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Uh, really, and it's very difficult to separate in a discussion like this the doctrine of Scripture uh, or bibliology, to use the 50-cent word, uh, from the doctrine of the church or ecclesiology, because our ecclesiology and our bibliology are obviously going to be related. The fact of the matter is that uh, uh, Christians who, do, who reject Sola Scriptura do not all agree on the identity, boundaries, uh, nature, authority, structure, etc. of the Church. Uh, of obviously, uh, the elephant in the room here is the Roman Catholic Church and the differences between Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians as to what exactly is the Church and who's in charge. Uh, where this infallibility of the church resides and how it is expressed, there is severe disagreement. Uh, even among Christians in these different communions 
there is disagreement about a lot of things uh, that that gets uh, brushed over uh, in these kinds of discussions. Uh, Protestantism uh, has the obvious flaw that it has many divisions. And many people blame this on sola scriptura. I would propose that that is not a fair judgment. Sola scriptura is not the problem. The problem is human beings are fallible, human beings are sinful, human beings are by nature stubborn, uh, pig-headed, divisive, uh, as well as ignorant and limited in their perspectives. Uh, Protestantism perhaps brings that out in a very obvious way in terms of the number of denominations and the number of specific organizational units that it comprises. But there is division, confusion, uh, misunderstandings, disagreements, etc. in every part of Christianity and not just in Protestantism. The problem isn't scripture. The problem isn't sola scriptura. The problem is those who are knowing scripture and learning from it are quite flawed, fallible, immature, and we have a lot of room to grow. Uh, We invite all Christians to participate in the hard work of reading scripture and understanding it correctly and abiding by it. And that is a process that will go forward and every part of the church can contribute to it. But the standard will always be scripture. Scripture alone is the infallible revelation from God available to the church today by which we can adjudicate the doctrinal controversies that persist in Christianity. God bless you all, and thanks for listening. Okay, thank you, Rob. All right, so now we'll move into the question and answer period, and I only received one question for each of you from listeners, so I've come up with a few others myself, and we'll see how uh, unbiased and objective I was able to be. Um, but let's let's start with Rob. Let, let's let's pose the first question to you, and this question comes from a, a friend of a friend of mine. His name is Florine, and he's a Eastern Orthodox, and here's what he says. There are many texts in the Bible whose meaning is unclear and individual readers, however sincere, are in danger of error if they trust their own personal interpretation. The Ethiopian eunuch rhetorically asked how he could understand the prophet Isaiah without a guide. The Orthodox Church recognizes one source of authority, that of the apostolic tradition, of which the Holy Scriptures are only one very important part. Doesn't the myriad of conflicting Protestant denominations and interpretations of the same texts prove that the Scriptures are not enough to guide a soul to the right understanding? And you have two and a half minutes to respond. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I guess I need to elaborate on that, do, uh, do, don't I? Uh, sola Scriptura does not mean uh, the Scripture is, is all so plain there's never going to be any doctrinal disagreement. That, that, if it predicted that or expected that, that would be a legitimate criticism. Uh, misunderstandings of Scripture would abound whether we had Protestantism or not. But at least with Protestantism, you have an open acknowledgement that there are things in Scripture that people don't fully understand or on which people are not fully agreed. Uh, so that's really the problem. The problem isn't the doctrine of Scripture that Protestants hold. It's simply bringing out into the open the fact that there's a lot that we have to learn about Scripture and that not everybody views it in the same way. Uh, there were theological disagreements among Christians and exegetical differences of opinion among exegetes long before the Protestants came along. Uh, now, of course, there was agreement on the essentials. There was agreement on the uh, regular fide, the rule of faith. There still is. Uh, Protestants, Protestants who accept the classic Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura still accept the same rule of faith expressed in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and so forth. We hold to the same basic doctrinal system. We hold to the same basic view of God. None of those things uh, are are lost if you accept the Protestant view of sola scriptura. Now, if you accept restorationism, you might lose those things. And I've talked about that in in fact, I talked about it in my opening statement. But you don't lose those things uh, by holding to sola scriptura. What sola scriptura does is allow us to break open uh, the word of God, to, to get into it with an honest acknowledgement that we're not all going to agree on the exegesis of specific texts. And this is fundamental, that the meaning of scripture is to be found from scripture, not imposed from the outside by a church dictating how it is to be read. Okay, thank you, Rob. Lawrence, your uh, one-minute response. 
It is a, a good question in the sense that, indeed, in the context of the book of Acts, the Ethiopian is asking for guidance. Uh, by the way, uh, baptism is involved in this moment. And uh, when uh, St. Peter discusses the uh, the danger, so to speak, uh, with the misuse of uh, St. Paul's letters, he talks about the the untaught. And so the question is, someone has to teach. There are, in fact, teachers in the church. And the question becomes, again, where are the teachers? Because we today, when we inherit uh, as a gift sometimes uh, uh, a Bible, we have before us all of these teachers, and in Orthodoxy we especially emphasize the pre-Nicene and post-Nicene fathers, and all of them together give give us that teaching which we need to understand what is meant, for example, uh, uh, in particular uh, uh, doctrinal controversies, uh, uh, what is the, how should we uh, in- interpret, for example, uh, John okay. chapter 6, and so forth. Okay, thanks, Lawrence. Uh, now, my next question is for you, Lawrence. This comes from a listener of mine named Tyler, and, and I'm not quite sure what his uh, what tradition he comes from. But he asks, how do you, Lawrence, understand the eschatological maturation or, or maturing of the church into full unity, as mentioned in passages like Ephesians 4.13? And you've got two and a half minutes. Okay, I'm not sure the question has anything to do with uh, Sola Scriptura. Um, uh, except if uh, it is to imply that somehow the, the the church and Christians will grow into some kind of a new knowledge and and so forth, and that of course would be a problem because we would say that the faith was delivered once for all to the saints, Jude verse three, and that we are under the standing command to not alter the apostolic uh, command that we are to to receive the things that that have been deposited to us and to change nothing. If the question has to do with ecclesiology, then I would say that uh, there is a uh, dimension of the church, which is, uh, you could say, supertemporal, which you could compare to the uh, Holy of Holies, and it is made manifest in space and time, in particular locations, in the Eucharist, and that is the structure of the church, as long as the, the bishops and presbyters and deacons and people are there and that they are in succession and communion with all the churches of the past and, and through space and time. So the question is very odd to me as far as being uh, related to Swastikaptura, but maybe Rob has an insight that he wants to share. Rob? Uh, well, actually, I think it's a very interesting and, and appropriate question because in, in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 13, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of the ministries of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers as contributing to the building up of the body of Christ, and then verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Now, this statement clearly implies that unity of the faith was not a given at the beginning of church history. It is a goal toward which church history moves. And so why is that if the church has had a monolithic, uh, unified structure, uh, system of command and regulation and administration that guarantees the unity of the faith as long as everybody uh, submits to the ecclesiastical authorities? That doesn't make sense in the context of what Paul says there in Ephesians 4. Okay. All right, now, for the rest of these questions, the, the remaining three for each of you, I've, I've come up with these on my own, and, and many of them I've come up with uh, during the course of the debate, so hopefully they're, they're relevant. Uh, and this one, I'm, I'm returning back to you, Rob. Uh, Lawrence pointed out that the New Testament doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about church practices, um, and, and there are some people who would argue that in certain places, instructions which are given aren't followed by Protestants today. Now, you said that practices have to be consistent with Scripture, but that anything not prohibited by Scripture is allowed, uh, if I might paraphrase what you said. But what about places like 1 Corinthians 7.17 where Paul says he directs all the churches to do certain things. Doesn't scripture seem to indicate that the churches should be consistent with one another in church practice? And if that's the case, given the lack of detail in scripture when it comes to practice, how can it be the sole infallible rule? Well, where uh, the apostles uh, as we see in the New Testament provide instructions that are to apply to all the churches, 
as Paul's instruction did in that context there in 1 Corinthians 7, then, of course, all the churches were supposed to follow that practice. But Paul also points out that there are matters of practice on which Christians will have disagreement and different points of view. And he actually says that uh, in such matters, everybody should simply make up their own mind and uh, act in accordance with their conscience and with respect and consideration for the conscience of others. For example, we see this in Romans 14. Uh, so the fact of the matter is that some practical matters are expected to be uh, uniform throughout the church, and other practical matters are left undefined, are left open to interpretation or variant practices in various contexts. And where Scripture uh, provides uh, no such uh, direction that all Christians must follow, uh, then there is no one practice that all Christians must follow. Now, the, you know, if we look at something like the issue of infant baptism, the claim uh, that the church has always done it the same way simply doesn't hold up historically. Uh, the evidence, as best I can tell, shows that infant baptism was a controversial question in the third century, not a settled matter that the Christ Christian church had always done in one way and in one way only. Uh, there wouldn't have been a controversy over it if it had been always done in the same way. So sometimes the argument for an apostolic tradition outside of what we find in the New Testament ends up having a certain historical naivete that doesn't hold up under close examination. Okay, Lawrence, your, Lawrence, your one-minute response? Well, it is certainly... Uh interesting to see that uh, we just discussed the, the matter of growing into unity and uh, manifesting in every place uh, because the church is always a reality in a particular place. Uh, it's, it's critical to see that church is always church in Rome, church in Corinth, church in a given city, and then you have churches. And it was important uh, that the churches had a uniform practice also for the sake of unity, for the sake of having a common experience. Saint Basil, writing in the 300s, talks about this, this, this uniformity of traditions that was at least in the, in the entire Christian East, uh, to be found. There were some, some minor variations perhaps in the West, but it is certain that because the scriptures do not give us due to the very nature of the epistles and due to the, the nature of the, the sacraments, they are, uh, quote, mystery, they are pearls. Therefore, we need to look at the apostolic uh, traditions from the early churches, and we need to do our best to continue them. Uh, I personally think that um, uh, the, the kiss of peace, for example, uh, which was uh, lost to an extent in the Orthodox churches, should be restored in some form because it is an apostolic tradition and we are bound by these traditions. Okay. Uh, my next question for you, Lawrence, is this. The New Testament contains several texts which seem to indicate that we are to test that what we are taught is true, condemning those who teach another gospel and another Jesus. If scripture is not the sole infallible rule, by what mechanism, by what means can we test those who claim to also have some sort of infallible rule, such as the Eastern Orthodox tradition? Well, as we've discussed in this debate, uh, it is uh, uh, an agreed uh, fact, it seems to me, that during a time of inscripturation, the the Christians, the people of God, do not operate under sola scriptura because there is a, an oral proclamation of the word of God being delivered uh, either by the Lord himself, he's the incarnate word of God, or the apostles. So the, the verses that appeal to testing cannot possibly, except if they refer to some time in the future, teach sola scriptura. The testing has to be done, uh, at least at the time of the scriptures being written, uh, by comparing what, what the apostles taught. And again, we see to Peter and Jude pointing back to what was taught to these people by the authorities, that would be uh, the apostles and those appointed by them. And for us, certainly, 
everything has to conform to scripture. The dogmas have to be rooted in scriptures and they have to be uh, there in some material form. However, we can resort to uh, to, an, to the entire structure given by God, which is the church and tradition through the centuries and through the spaces, so to speak, to make sure that our interpretation of a text is in harmony with what has been taught everywhere at all times and by all, to cite here uh, St. Vincent of Lerain in his uh, famous principle of universality. Rob, your one-minute response? Yes, two passages that I think are quite fascinating and irrelevant to this, relevant to this question. The first is in Acts 17, verse 11. Uh, when Paul and Silas went to Berea and uh, preached to the Jews in the synagogue there, Luke tells us that the Berean Jews welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Even the teaching of the apostles, uh, which was not yet inscripturated, was tested by that which was already uh uh, deposited permanently for the people of God in Scripture, and that's what these Thessalonians did. The other passage I want to uh, cite here is Galatians chapter 1 and 2. And I, would, I don't have time to go through the whole passage, but if you read through, what you find is that Paul does not appeal to the infallible church or to the church bishop structure or even the other college of apostles as giving him authority as the apostle that he was, but rather he derives his authority directly from Jesus Christ and appeals to his his readers to base their understanding of the gospel on revelation, not on an infallible church. Okay, Rob, my next question for you. Uh, you responded to Lawrence's argument from the New Testament Church, uh, or, or that the New Testament Church could not operate by sola scriptura, by saying that they had living apostles uh, delivering the infallible word of God. What, what indication is there in scripture, if any, that there would be this sort of transition from a period of infallible ap- apostolic authority to deliver the word of God to another period of time in which we're in now, uh, in which we should operate by sola scriptura? Yes, well, again, uh, I the, the epistles that I cited that I think are particularly relevant here are Second Timothy, Second Peter, and the Epistle of Jude. In these epistles, each of these three apostles, uh, and implicitly, and actually with Paul and Peter, it's explicitly uh, acknowledged that they're about to pass from the scene. Uh, the apostles are, as a group, passing from the scene. This is in the mid to late 60s, apparently. And uh, they are making provision for the church uh, to remain faithful to the gospel after the apostles pass. They do not say, listen to the successors to the apostles. Instead, they say, remember what your apostles and prophets told you in the past. This is what we find in Scripture. If we want to know what the apostles said, if we want to know what the prophets said, we look to Scripture, that's where we find their words. We see Peter saying this in Second Peter 2 and 3. We see Jude saying this in Jude verse 17. Uh, we see that Paul in Second Timothy 3 and 4, uh, again, uh, one goes through the whole passage there and not just picks out a verse out of context. Paul is making provision uh, through Timothy uh, for the transition to a church that does not have apostles. Uh, this is going to be a church in which faithful people, not infallible people, but faithful people, faithfully pass on the teaching that they got, and they do so by remembering and being faithful to the words of Scripture, which are able to make them adequate for the work that God calls them to, as Peter, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 3.17. So those are the uh, places where I would especially point to as evidence that the apostles themselves were laying the groundwork for that transition. Okay, thanks. Uh, Lawrence, your one-minute response? Yeah, I would certainly want to balance, again, that approach, because certainly uh, the apostles were aware that uh, their writings would uh, be used as scripture and would... Uh, become the touchstone of apostolic uh, teaching because they would be certified, so to speak, and in written form. But it's also very clear in the epistles which we discussed, one, that there is reference to the personal spoken word, uh, both in 
uh, to Peter as well as in the epistle of uh, uh, St. Paul to Timothy to remember where it came from. There's a, this real personal approach to what was taught. This would be the point of reference. Remember who taught it, who it was. And then there's this charge to uh, to create a structure to appoint men who would then be able to faithfully pass it on and to discharge the office in the church. So again, what we see is that there is tradition, which is passing on, passing on both the oral teachings and also passing on a structure. And there is also uh, the church, which is highlighted again in 1 Timothy 3.15. And there is the scriptures. All of three are inseparable. And I think it would be an error again to isolate to isolate uh, with a sola scriptura and to miss uh, the other aspects which are fundamental to uh, God's uh, and Christ's mind for his people. Okay. Uh, Lawrence, my next question for you is, uh, if I remember correctly, you quoted Origen as support for infant baptism and for evidence that apostolic tradition is necessary for church practice. Uh, but from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Origen taught things like universalism. He taught the eternal preexistence of the soul. He denied the historicity of certain portions of scripture, and he denied that Jesus rose physically from the grave. Irenaeus taught that Jesus' ministry lasted over 10 years and that he died at 50 or older. So uh, if you can cite Origen and Irenaeus as evidence that apostolic tradition is the infallible rule of doctrine and practice, Shouldn't all three of us and those listening also be universalists, believe that the soul pre-exists forever and that Jesus rose only spiritually from the dead at the age of 50 after some 10 or more years of ministry? Well, it's a good question, uh, and I would not use uh, the term infallible in, in that way, in an intellectual sense. Uh, I would say that infallibility ultimately is in terms of soteriology, is, is us being saved by being joined to Christ, and that is done... Uh, especially in the church, which is the body of Christ, and in the mysteries, especially the Eucharist and uh, uh, baptism, but also the other sacraments. Now, uh, it's very interesting that Origen is very careful in his writings to distinguish between his own speculations, for example, in his famous book, The Principis, where he does uh, speculate on all kinds of things, from what is indeed the practice of the churches and what is from the apostles. And it is, in fact, because Origen is so specific in, in making that difference that we can isolate what is traditional, what is apostolic, what is, what is claimed to, by the bishops, what is done by the churches, uh, and what would be speculations. Another example would be, for example, that Origen says that all the churches of Christ use the longer canon, the so-called Septuagint, that all Christians uh, under heaven, he says, have received from providence these extra books. So whether we like that or not, he's able to give us factual information about what has been received, and we can distinguish that from uh, speculations. And I won't comment so much on Arrhenius, because I think there's some complexities with the text. It comes from the Latin translation of the Greek. It's not always clear what he means, and I don't think that we can really uh, criticize tradition based on that particular instance in Arrhenius. Okay, Rob, your one-minute response. Yeah, well, it's a good thing I had my uh, microphone on m- mute when you asked your question because I burst out laughing. <laughs> uh, look, uh, Lawrence has really uh, backed away from affirming the infallibility of the church except in what he calls a soteriological sense. That's not in dispute here, and the, the real issue is the infallibility of doctrinal statements, uh, truth claims made outside of Scripture. The Protestant position is no doctrinal or truth claims made outside of Scripture carry the character of authority known as infallibility. Only that which is found in Scripture that we have today uh, has that authority, and so that's really the issue here. Okay, uh, Rob, my final question for you. Uh, as Lawrence pointed out, and I, and I don't think that I heard you respond to this, Paul said to Timothy that the church, the household of God, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Doesn't this indicate that it is the church and its tradition and not solely scripture, which is this infallible rule of faith and practice for Christians today? Well, First uh, Timothy 3.15 is is uh, taken as a disproof of sola scriptura would really end up subordinating scripture to the church. 
In other words, if we understand 1 Timothy 3.15 to say that the church is the uh, final court of appeal and the final authority uh, for uh, doctrinal issues or for, you know, whatever of that nature, uh, then it ends up subordinating scripture to the church. So the argument really proves too much. I think that in context, what Paul is saying is this is what the church is supposed to be, not what it infallibly always is. That is, the church is the community of God, uh, the followers of Jesus Christ, whose charge and responsibility is to support the truth, is to stand up for the truth, uh, to uphold it, etc. We can use all the same kinds of imagery that Paul uses uh, and put it in modern terminology. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's what the church generally does, uh, but fallibly, not infallibly. Uh, the church does not infallibly exercise this responsibility. Uh, and because of that, we need to be careful about assuming that whatever we hear from the church uh, must be true and cannot be challenged. Uh, at various points in history, key points in history, there's been a very significant need for the few to stand up to the many. It happened in the 4th century with Athanasius. It happened about a 1,000 years later with Wycliffe. Uh, there are times when Christians of good conscience must stand against the machine, must stand against the church as an establishment, as an institution, at status quo, uh, must challenge the conventional wisdom. That's what Athanasius did. It's what Wycliffe did. It's what various Christians have had to do at various times. The doctrine of an infallible church, which actually Lawrence has kind of backed away from, uh, would, would take that away. Sola Scriptura maintains the basis for that. It says here is the standard by which we can always do a, a, a reality check as to whether what the church is teaching is in, in fact faithful to the gospel. Lawrence, your one-minute response? We can see the risk, again, in divorcing the scriptures from the church. We don't want to subordinate uh, the scriptures to the church. In fact, the great uh, bishop of uh, Jerusalem in the, in the 300s, uh, Cyril, when he teaches the catechumens, he says, on the one hand, don't accept anything from me except if I can show it to you from the scriptures. But then he says also, learn from the church what the scriptures contain. And we see that there's a mutual uh, indwelling, uh, a perichoresis, so to speak, almost kind of like in the Trinity between church, scripture, and tradition, and that we need these three pillars to have sound doctrine. Okay, uh, final question for the evening, uh, and this is back to you, Lawrence. Many organizations claim to have some sort of infallible authority that, that we as Christians ought to submit. Uh, why is it that we should assume that the Eastern Orthodox tradition is this authority rather than, say, the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Watchtower and the Jehovah's Witnesses and so on and so forth? Why Eastern Orthodoxy? Okay, the the point that I think we tried to make this evening is that uh, Christ has uh, established his church, uh, and that for us to be delivered from the gates of death, so to speak, and from the final perdition, we have to be joined to this church. Now, the church, again, is to be uh, defined as the manifestation of God's of Christ's body in a particular place, and that requires particular attributes according to the mind of Christ, to use Ignatius' of Antioch's uh, expression. And in the, in the Orthodox Church, what you have is you have the tradition, the body, that historically, you could say literally, preserved, discerned the scriptures, received the traditions about the way things are to be done. We still practice them to this very day. You can read Cyril of Jerusalem in the 300s. You can read Basil, and you say, wow, it's the same practices, it's the same faith, it's the same liturgy. And therefore, we say that for those who seek the church, who seek certainty that they are uh, in obedience to Christ's mind, to Christ's divinely appointed structure, to have that assurance that is to be found in the Orthodox faith and what we call the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Bob? Yeah, well, uh, the idea of going back uh, to find out what the Church is really all about is a good idea, but uh, we need to go back a little bit further than Irenaeus and Basil. We need to go back to Peter and Paul, James and John, and what we find is that 
though the, the basic uh, theological uh, commitments of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, etc., are, are in place in the Orthodox Church that we find in the New Testament, we also find a lot of things in Orthodoxy that are not in the New Testament that I would argue are not even faithful to the spirit of the New Testament. The New Testament does not have the kind of ecclesiastical monolithic structure that either the Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox traditions maintain is essential to the operation of the Christian church. And so that's the disconnect that Sola Scriptura forces us to take account of. Okay, well, with that, I just want to thank you both so much. I, I really enjoyed the debate. I think that it was handled in a very irenic, amicable manner. So, so thank you both so much for, for joining me tonight. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rob. I think it was a good debate. Appreciate it. Appreciate it very much, both of you. Thank you. All right, well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast when Lawrence returns to debate infant baptism with Reformed Baptist Jamin Hubner. Until then...